Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Freeman Means Business Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Bob Berg. Bob is the author of The Go-Giver Influencer, a really fantastic book that I have had on my night table for a couple of nights now. It's a quick read, but it will change your life in only minutes. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time. Susan, great to be with you. Well, awesome. I was reading your book. I fell in love with it halfway through it. I was like, this is so in keeping with my personal style. Um, Tell us a little more about what prompted you to write Go-Giver Influencer and how it is an offshoot of the original. Sure. And this this is our fourth book in the series, The Third Parable. And the term influence, the concept of influence has, has been a big part of every one of the books. But John David Mann, my awesome co-author and really the lead writer, lead storyteller, he's a, you know, I'm a how-to guy. I'm step one, step two, step three. John's a brilliant storyteller. Uh, so it's truly a collaboration. And uh, we wanted to take the, the, the concept of influence deeper because I believe it's a very misunderstood term. It's one of those words that's sort of bandied around a lot. And as such, it's kind of lost its meaning (laughs) or it can be, you know, it can be defined so many different ways that we wanted to take it from a basic premise, drill down and be able to equip people to be able to, to utilize their influence in a very positive, productive way, both for them and for everyone they deal with. Well, I'd like to hear more about that. We hear the word often. It is an overused word. Um, I often say to myself, well, what is the difference between power and influence or persuasion and influence? And then I come to this question of, well, what is influence really? So so let's look at that because I I think that's a great question, Susan. Influence itself can be, uh, I, I think is both, it can be both surface and deeper. So let's look at both. On a very surface level, uh, okay, influence can be defined as the ability to move a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a specific goal. By definition, that's what influence is. That's its definition. I do not believe that that is its substance or its essence. The essence of influence is pull pull as opposed to push, as in the old question, how far can you push a rope? And we know the answer is not very far, uh, at least not very fast or very effectively, which is why great influencers or what we call genuine influencers don't push. You, you never hear people say things like, oh, wow, that Dave or that Laura, she is so influential. She has a lot of push. <laughs> Right. Yes, she sure exactly. is right. No, she has a lot. She's influential. She has a lot of pull with people. I love that, that analogy. Influence. I've never heard that analogy. That's great. Oh, thank you. And so really it is pull. It's, it, it, it's an attraction. Great influencers attract people first to themselves and only then to their ideas. And they do this uh, again. Um, through pull as opposed to, well, you know what it is? It really, it, it comes down to pull is, um, uh, is when you're able to persuade as opposed to uh, push when you, is when you're basically manipulating, okay? Correct. And so when you look at what are the real differences, you know, influence itself is, is, is neutral. It's sort of like gravity, okay? It's neither good nor bad. It simply is. Um, gravity is a, is a law of nature. Is it good or bad? Well, it depends. It manifests itself as good when keeping us from floating aimlessly up into space. It manifests itself as bad when we fall off a seven-story building, okay? It's right. the same with influence. It manifests itself as good when we're talking about persuasion, helping someone come to a conclusion that's in their best interest. It manifests itself as bad when somebody uses these skills in order to manipulate Uh, another human being into doing their will. This is the difference between power and force. See, power is is a good thing, okay? Force is a negative thing. Force is control. It's manipulation. It's intimidation. It's compliance. And the challenge with compliance, trying to influence or lead through compliance, is that at best, people will do exactly what they're told, 
but certainly not any more than what they're told. And often they'll sabotage the process completely. Okay. Um, when you have, when it's, when it's power, when they're buying into you first, they are much more committed to carrying this through. So, so it seems like what you're saying is when people engage in a process that your book speaks to or that you're sharing more about now, both parties can walk away feeling good about the process versus um, a more forceful or pushy sales. Let's just use sales for an example. Mm -hmm. uh, salesperson might, um, the engagement ends and somebody walks away feeling icky. Right. And that's one of the differences between a manipulator and a persuader, because a manipulator, they may not uh, be attempting to harm you, but if that's what it takes to get the results they want, they will. They're totally I-focused or me-focused. With a persuader, that could never happen, because for a persuader to feel good about the situation, they've got to know two things. One, that you came away winning as well. And two, that you feel good about this transaction, about this relationship. And so, you know, that's, that's very important as a salesperson. And when you think about it, what is, what is selling? Unfortunately, people have a, uh, a preconceived notion about it, right? And they, they think selling is, is trying to convince someone to buy something they don't want or need. When in actuality, that's not selling. That's called being a con artist. And that's gotcha. not what selling is about. By definition, selling is simply discovering what the other person does want, need, desire, and helping them to get it. And when you approach it that way, you understand uh, that you're doing a service for someone when you sell. Right, right. So let me ask you, let's put this into context um, in the world that I find myself most often, and that is the legal arena or professional services. So I, mm -hmm. I work with a lot of attorneys who are afraid to engage with clients because they fear selling is pushy and dirty. And my um, theory is a lot along the same lines of what you just said, that it's a sign of respect when you partner with your client and listen and learn more and engage in a, a process that both parties feel good about. So how can lawyers and accountants and engineers and those who are not traditionally um, extroverted or comfortable with the engaging in a question asking process or an engaging in a trusted advisor, advisor status process, how can they use some of your lessons mm -hmm. or some things we learn in the book to, you know, grow and protect their law practices or better yet grow and protect their clients companies? Sure. Well, I, you know, I'd say there are two issues here. One is, uh, again, when we talk about introvert and extrovert, uh, typically, you know, people think you need to be an extrovert to be a good salesperson, when really introverts have a decided advantage in terms of sales. Because with, ex yeah, with extroverts, what do they want to do? They want to talk. <laughs> right? yeah. And, you know, selling is, and you know this, selling is not about talking. You know, when someone's talking about their own product, blah, 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 you know, people tune out. People, they're pushing uh, the rope. Yeah, exactly. And so with, uh, with someone who's introverted, they're much more likely to be happy to ask the other person questions and listen. And that's a big part of the selling process. So let's go back to that in a second and, and answer the question. So what does a, a lawyer or an architect or a, a, an accountant, someone who is a professional who probably, you know, does see selling as something that's not a lot of fun. Uh, but again, that's because they basically see selling as, as that, you're right, that uh, not something that it really is. So, so the first thing is for them to understand what selling is. And, you know, the old English root of the word sell was salan, which meant to give. So oh. when you're, yeah, when you sell, when you're selling, you're literally, not figuratively, literally giving. And now someone's like, okay, Bob, but that, you know, that, that's, um, that's a good trick, but you know, how is it really when you sell, how is it really giving? And I would say this, when you have a person in front of you, a prospective customer or client, okay, and you are basically in a sales presentation. So what are, when you're selling, what are you giving? I suggest you're giving them time, attention, counsel, education, empathy, and most of all, value. So as a professional, you should be proud of the fact that yes, you are selling. But selling is different from what you may have thought it is. 
That's selling the key. Is, yeah. So selling is different than what in their minds it is. So the, the connotation is, is, you know, is not the same as what it truly is. I love your story right there, your definition of selling and how the process should look. Um, sure. and, Thank and you. That was fantastic. Um, tell me a little bit more about influence. So the, the secrets of genuine influence, what do we need to know? How do we harness that and how do we share that with others? Okay. Well, first, you know, we, we understand that the way to really, um, when we were talking about, you know, pull as opposed to push, the way to really pull is to understand something, uh, understand a very basic aspect of human nature. And I first learned this reading many, many years ago, reading um, uh, Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. This, this one sentence meant more to me in terms of understanding human nature than anything I had read or heard at the, at that, uh, uh, you know, until that time. And it's where he said, and it was really the underlying principle of his entire book. And it's where Mr. Carnegie said, ultimately, people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. the, yeah. So the genuine influencer, how do they pull? Well, they do so by asking themselves certain questions. And in these questions, they are going to move from that I focus or me focus that so many people have to what we call an other focus. And, and here's what they're going to basically ask themselves. How does what I want this other person to do, how does it align with their goals, with their wants, with their needs, with their desires? How does what I'm asking this other person do, how does it align with their values? What problem is it solving for them? Perfect. What are they, right. And so that's how, so when you do this, and when you ask yourself these questions, and this is the key, Susan, when you, when you ask yourself these questions thoughtfully, intelligently, uh, genuinely, authentically, again, not as a way to manipulate another human being into doing your will, but as a way of building everyone in the process, now you've earned that person's commitment as opposed to trying to depend on some type of compliance. Again, the difference between power and force. Wonderful. This is fantastic. So I, I would argue that you need to be respectful enough of your prospect or client to understand their business industry, their challenges. Mm -hmm. their, so asking questions that you can't find answers to on their website is a great way to build a relationship and gain trust and be likable. And I think that when you put um, Dale Carnegie's message into play, people do things for their reasons, not our reasons, that then it makes selling actually fantastic, a wonderful, a gift to someone, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, rather than something icky dirty, don't do it. Exactly. That's, that's so great. That's really great. Um, so I want to hear a little bit, um, let's talk more about the book because I'm fascinated with the book. It's made me want to go back and start from the beginning and read all of the series of books. Oh, thank you. I have a little bit of you in me that I like my list, you know, step one, step two, step three. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little, I'm like, oh no, I'm reading the newest one first. No, uh, but it <laughs> makes sense still it still is impactful and moving um i can relate to a lot of what happens in the book between the two characters uh jillian and jackson mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit about those um five secrets of genuine influence because i i could certainly use some of that advice myself <laughs> oh thank you the the first one is to master your emotions and, you know, this is, a, this is really a key. The, the sages asked, who is a mighty person? And they answered, that person who can control their own emotions and make of an enemy or of a potential enemy a friend. This is where it really begins because it's only when we're in control of our emotions, when we're in control of ourselves, that we're even in a position to take a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. Now, we all know this, and we all know how respected the person is who's able to remain calm and in control and to deal with things in this way, and yet how often do we uh, uh, you know, allow someone, based on what they say or do, to 
push our emotional hot buttons and we, we make ourselves miserable or hurt or frustrated or helpless or angry. And as a result, we say or do something that's totally you know, counterproductive to what we need to be doing in order to, to accomplish our goals. And the question is, well, if we know this, why do we do it? And the answer is because we're human beings. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> it, right. The human as, condition. Yeah. Yeah. As human beings, we are emotional creatures. Uh, we'd like to think we're logical, and to a certain extent, of course, we are. But we're we're pretty much emotion driven. We make major decisions based on emotion, and we back up those emotional decisions with logic. We we rationalize, which simply means we tell ourselves rational lies. And <laughs> we, I've never heard that either. <laughs> and. You know, and so so the the key is not, and and one thing, you know, I just wanted you to know, we, we're not suggesting that you uh, deny your emotions. Um, just simply make sure that you are the master of your emotions, as opposed to your emotions being the master of you. Great. That's that's the big thing. Or you know, is my great friend, a great speaker and practitioner on leadership, Don DiScumaci puts it, uh, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. That's you know, you're, perfect. Yeah, you're at the wheel and uh, your logical part of you is at the wheel. Your emotions can come along with you, but your emotions are in the passenger seat, uh, seat belt securely fastened. So I they, totally get that. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's a great analogy. So in some of the training that I do, and we talk about how men and women communicate differently, um, we find that in leadership, so, so I'll just use an example of an experience that I had. Um, a male leader in a law firm got quite angry about something and threw a chair across the room and it hit the wall and everyone in the room um, just chalked it up as, well, of course, he's angry. Things didn't go his way and he's a leader and that's how leaders behave. But I ask, had a woman done that, would she have been permissioned in such a way? And then I also use the emotion of uh, crying or welling up with tears. So women, when we get frustrated, our eyes might well up, but we know never, ever cry at work because it's seen as a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. So I, I often say, you know, cry in your office, close the door until society changes and is more accepting of the fact that that's not a sign of weakness, but instead it's how you throw the chair, then we must manage those emotions and at least, um, you know, like you said, put them in the driver's seat, seat buckled up, you know, mm -hmm. so that's, that's great. This is very helpful for me in my world, a lot of what I've seen. So talk about empathy a little bit, you know, stepping into the other person's shoes. Well, yeah. So there's a a couple levels of this because, you know, we say step into their shoes, but is that really, you know, we hear that saying all the time, but is it really that easy? And and then you think about, well, you know, maybe it's not because most people have different size feet. So <laughs> we literally yeah. can't step into their shoes. Um, figuratively, we can't step into their heads or their minds. We don't yeah. know what they're thinking. Now, we often think we do. As human beings, we all operate from a set of beliefs. These are beliefs that were handed to us when before we were old enough to logically decide if they were beliefs we wanted or beliefs that would serve us. But so with we all call this, those vertically structured beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so so we all see the world a certain way. We all, you know, operate from a, um, in I guess you could say an unconscious operating system believing that we we are using free will, if you will, when really we're typically operating and making decisions only within a set, uh, for, you know, a set um, uh, uh, paradigm, if you will. <laughs> so, but here's the other, but here's the other thing, Susan. We tend to think that other people see the world basically the way we do. Okay, I mean, that's natural. How, how else could it be? How could it be any different? It's all we know. This is why you hear people say things like, oh, everybody likes that. When that's yes. not necessarily true. Or nobody would want that. Or even, well, I'd never treat someone that way. 
No, we wouldn't because it's not congruent with our belief systems, but with other people, that's not necessarily so. So what we need to understand that is that most conflict is the result of two or more people seeing the same basic thing from different points of view. But usually sure, not like even projection, real. perhaps like projection, or maybe we live in our bubble. I mean, look at the political landscape today. That's that's mm -hmm. groupthink. Janice's groupthink. Um, that's a perfect, I think, example of what you're saying. Am I correct? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, we can't see how someone else would see something differently. So this is why that if you want to really get into a person's head in a positive way and get to step into their shoes. Uh, we need to ask questions. So we say ask questions, but then listen, but not just listen, because what most people do when they listen is they're really listening in order to speak. Uh, they're, they're, they're letting that person get in their two cents as long as they can come back and get in their 10 cents. And so what we, what we say is one of the mentors said in the, in the story don't just listen with your ears. That's surface listening. Listen with your eyes. Listen with your posture. Listen with the back of your neck. In other words, put your entire being into listening to this person. Listening so that you absolutely, totally can understand what they are thinking. I and love that. I love that. I'm jotting this down. I want to use this in my training if I, if I have your permission. Absolutely, of course. That's why we wrote it. Absolutely. This is so fantastic. So, um, again, as you might imagine, working with lawyers that using the Socratic method, asking questions, uh, sometimes they feel like that makes me look like I don't know what I should know. But instead, it's a sign of respect oh, to of allow course. the other person to share their perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, yes, exactly. Now, here's where empathy is a little bit different than this, because when we talk about this, about, about um, you know, understanding how they're thinking, that's the thinking part, okay? With empathy, as you know, because you speak on empathy, and you teach on this, empathy by definition is the identification with or vicarious experiencing of another person's feelings. Feelings, yeah, the, the, exactly. Yeah, now the challenge with this is again, just like we don't necessarily know what someone's thinking because we're not them, we don't necessarily know how someone's feeling. And so what empathy will do is, uh, in, in, here's how we kind of see it. Empathy isn't necessarily knowing how the other person feels. Because again, sometimes we have absolutely no idea how they feel. What it is, is communicating to that person, not just with words, but by how you say things and by just how you show up. It's communicating that you, you may not know what, how they feel, but you understand they're feeling something. And that this something is distressful to them, it's disturbing to them, and that you are there for them to help them work through it. Uh, can I give you a, a quick example regarding yeah. the attorney? Let's say the attorney is doing their, uh, you know, what I would call their sales presentation. They're talking to this person about this person uh, potentially engaging them or retaining their services. Now, you're asking questions, you're finding out about this person, but you're also seeing that in certain areas, when you're asking questions that may be personal questions, maybe financial questions, maybe relationship questions, maybe, you know, what have you, that this person's been feeling like a little bit uptight and maybe they, they, maybe they want to ask something, but they really don't know if they, they should or if it will be, appear to be a dumb question or what. Well, here's the thing. Empathy is saying, hey, you know, I do this all the time. I conduct these interviews all the time. I ask these personal questions all the time, but maybe this person in front of me, maybe, you know, this is the first or second time they've done something like this and been asked these kind of questions by a virtual stranger. Maybe they've been taught never discuss your finances or your personal situations with strangers. Who knows what's going on in that person's mind? Empathy says, you may not know what they're feeling. How could you? but you know they're feeling something and you let this person know with an I message. So you take the pressure off them and put the onus on you. Uh, you know, Tom or, or Mary, uh, it just might be how I'm experiencing this, but I, I get the feeling there may be something that you want to ask me, but you're not sure you know, whether you should or not. Please know that, you know, 
this is what I do all the time. This is what I do every day. And I realized for you, it might be, you know, the first or second time. So please know this is what I'm here for. And, and for you to ask me any question that you'd like. So it's a lot like letting the person know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a lot like letting the person know um, that I don't know what you're feeling, but this is a safe place for you to share that. Ah, because, exactly. Yeah. You're making this person feel safe. And that's, yeah. that's a big, big part of empathy. Awesome, awesome. So what, what do you mean when you say things like um, set the frame or reset the other person's negative frame? I mean, well, this, help me with that. Yeah, you know, this is so important. The frame is so important that if you get this part right, you're 90% of the way to getting the results you want. And, and what is a frame? Well, a frame is the foundation from which everything else evolves. Uh, can I share a, a very quick frame story with you? Absolutely. I'm loving every minute of this. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you're very easy to speak with. See, this is, you, <laughs> you know this stuff. You already, uh, <laughs> you make it easy. But so, I'm conversational too, so I enjoy yeah. it. You go right ahead. I'm listening. Well, this was several years ago, and I was at my local Dunkin' Donuts uh, having my cup of coffee and reading as I'm usually doing at Dunkin' Donuts. And there was a, a little boy, a toddler, about I'd say two, two and a half years old, and he was running around the restaurant when his parents called him back over to the table. As he starts walking back, he takes a spill on the floor. He slips and falls. Now, he didn't hurt himself, but you could tell that he was shocked. Okay, he was very surprised. This was not part of his typical experience. So the first thing he did, of course, is look at the two people in the world. He trusts the most, his mom and dad. He looked at them in order to get their interpretation of uh -huh. the event. Okay, what happened, happened. The question he had is basically, what next? You know, his, right. I don't know really how, right? And I truly, truly believe that had the parents gotten upset and panicky and, oh no, you know, are you all right? My poor baby, you know, he would have started crying but they handled it just so beautifully. They walked over quickly, but very calmly, very serenely. They smiled and they, you know, they applauded and they laughed and they said, oh, that looks like so much fun. What a good trick. And immediately <laughs> the little boy began to laugh, right? Uh, yes. What the parents did is they set a very productive frame from which he could operate. So I have a story about that. This is great. So I, I am the mother. Um, I have one son and I did not make the wise decision to set the frame in that way. When he got hit in the face on the lip with a baseball, oh. um, when he was a very little boy, we lived on the, uh, we, we were on the Navy base in, in Pearl Harbor. So we lived on the base and we were playing a baseball game with, you know, just the little little kids. I can't even recall how old he was, but he was very young. And he got hit in the face and started bleeding everywhere. Well, of course, that that area, you know, of the mouth above the teeth is very thin skinned and it, you know, your lip bleeds a lot. And he was bleeding everywhere. And so I run out on the field. and I'm okay. like, I grab him up in my arms and I hold him and you know, and I'm like, somebody help, you know, he was mortified because he did not cry. He did not scream. He turned and looked at me just like the little boy in Dunkin' Donuts looked at his parents saying, how shall I proceed? Oh. And instead of looking at him and saying, you got this, are you okay? Or do you need me? I just bolted right out there and he never played again. And I tell the story that because he got hit in the face with the baseball, he decided baseball was not for him. Well, as he got older, he said, Mom, you know, I need to tell you the truth about what happened there. It had nothing to do with the fact that I got hit in the face with the baseball. It was you who embarrassed me so badly in front of the entire team and all the parents and the other team and their parents that I could just couldn't go back. I was like, no, this is just not for me. But being an old soul, even at a young age, he said, I felt it was going to make you feel bad if I told you that. So I said, I just don't want to play baseball anymore. Uh, what a good kid. Yeah, but, you know, great kid. But I got to tell you, you know, what you did is also very natural. I couldn't believe the people in the restaurant in the, at the Dunkin' Donuts handled it so well. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I 
can only imagine what you know the where, feeling. Where was this? Do you mind if I ask Boston or where? You know? uh, no, this was actually in Jupiter, Florida, where I live. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've been nice. I've been down here about 30, 31, 32 years. Grew up in the Boston area, where of course, which is Duncan Mecca. You know, I that's mean, why I asked. Yeah, first of all, your accent, okay? And I live. Oh no, you can hear that accent. I, I only... <laughs> thought I, I lost there it for twelve years. So. Oh. I went... Yeah, I worked at State Street. I lived in Situate, so I detect uh, the accent. But it was mostly because it is, um, you know, Disney World for Dunkin' Donuts up there. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so let's get back to the book. This is great conversation. Um, tell me how can we better communicate? Maybe maybe with you, you've explained empathy quite well, and I get that. I'm a feeler, ENFJ right here. So um, tell me a little bit about communicating with tact. What do you sure. mean by that? Well, you know, my, my, my dad has always defined tact as the language of strength. And nice. I, I love that definition because to me, it takes a strong person. It takes a mighty person to, to respond tactfully when someone says or does something that you don't like and, or to be it, to, to need to, to correct someone or critique someone or, you know, dare I say, constructively criticize someone. Not that we ever want to do that, but, you know, again, we're talking real world, not, not, you know, fantasy here. And there are times we need to be able to do that. Well, I think what tact does as the language of strength, it, it allows you to communicate this, Thing, this idea, this suggestion to somebody, something that they normally might not be uh, too pleased to hear, but to do so in such a way that not only are they not defensive toward you and resistant to your idea, but they become open to you and more receptive to your idea. That's what tact allows you to do. That is awesome. That is awesome. Ask your dad permission for me to use that in my training. Because that go, is awesome. go right ahead. Go right language ahead. Language of Ta strength. Tact is the language of strength. Mike Berg. We so Mike Berg. I will. I'll actually reference that, and you and the book. It's great. <laughs> so we so often need that again, especially in today's climate. It's it's True. win or lose all over, and it's just too. It's terrible. So I, I try to tell people, you know, calm is the samurai's greatest weapon. So stay calm. And now I will add to that, use tact, meaning the language of strength. Mm -hmm. so that's fantastic. Um, we also find not just in our personal lives with today's political and, um, you know, other taboo topics that are no longer taboo. We talk about them everywhere, religion and, you know, personal feelings and we're, you know, women's marches and, and, I see a lot of adversarial groups, you know, women versus men or, you know, one religion versus another or one political party versus another. How do we let go of having to be right? And does that mean you don't really care if you do? Well, that, what a wonderful question because uh, um, genuine influence principle number five is to let go of having to be right. And which is very counterintuitive when you think, well, if you're influencing, don't you want to be right? Well, of course, absolutely. Uh, and you'll prepare to be right and you'll equip yourself so that you usually are right and, and so forth, of course. Um, what we mean when we say let go of having to be right is, is a couple of things. One, really it means let go of the attachment to have the emotional attachment to having to be right or having to be 100% right. Uh, or to come across as, you know, always being right. And when we do this, rather than making us less influential, it makes us more influential. Why? For two basic reasons. One is when you let go of having to be right, you're able to go into learner's mode, okay? Uh, you're, you're able to open your mind to new ideas, to different ideas. Now, that doesn't mean you have to accept those ideas, not at all, but you're open to them. You're open to at least seeing them. Um, this as opposed to, to the person who absolutely, you know, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts, okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they can never know any more than they already do uh, and they, they usually, people who are like that typically don't know as much as they even think they do know. 
because their mind is very clouded. They're, they're typically a, a victim of uh, confirmation bias, which is a term yes. that we hear more and more. Now, you know, what is confirmation bias and why is it so detrimental? Well, the, the term almost defines itself. It's, right. it's when you hear some or come across some new information that confirms your already held beliefs or biases, you accept it as true. But when this information is contrary to these already accepted beliefs, you ignore it. Right. As such, you simply cannot grow. So when you, when you let go of having to be totally right, you, you put yourself in the position to gather more knowledge, okay? But the other thing is this. When you can, when that person with whom you're disagreeing or negotiating or what have you, when they come to understand, and they quickly will, that they're dealing with someone who's not just looking to be right to be right, who's not looking to be right at their expense by making them wrong, but that they're dealing with someone who's simply looking for truth, they will again be much more amenable to the ideas you're looking to put across. I agree. I agree. So this is so I'm jotting notes down left and right. You're fantastic. So I've studied Buddhism just as a philosophy. And um, I find that law of no attachment, don't be attached to the outcome, good or bad is safe. And it keeps you open to learning new things and developing new relationships. But in this day of fake news, that bias that you reference is definitely um, just uber popular and people tend to look for the source that will confirm their beliefs, whether those beliefs are right or wrong or supported by facts. Um, I did a project called think way back when Um, it was a two and a half year project. We had 190,000 participants in this project and I would put forth primary sources and propaganda to see which got more likes, comments, um, and shares. And the sad fact at the end of two and a half years of doing this, the propaganda won out because of the bias you mentioned. Um, I I do think people are seeking sources that will confirm and give them permission to feel the things they feel and say the things they say and do the things they do and not have to change their behaviors based on facts that don't align with their own misguided you know selves well again that's you know that's emotion overriding logic and so when when you and i and the people listening when we can understand this and be aware of this and then ask ourselves you know when we start when we hear let's say another person's view okay and, and we don't necessarily agree as soon as we feel ourselves getting defensive let's ask ourselves the question you know, could this be confirmation bias? Um, on our own here, parts, right? It, on, our, on our own part. Because here's the thing. And Scott Adams, uh, who is the author, of, or he's the writer behind Dilbert, yes. uh, who also is very much into hypnosis and very much into persuasion. He's written some remarkably brilliant books. Um, and he talks a lot about confirmation bias. And one of the things that he says uh, and I hadn't really thought of it until he, he wrote this, was that you know, one, of the, um, one of the characteristics of suffering from confirmation bias is that the sufferer does not realize he or she is suffering from confirmation bias and will deny it because they really don't believe it. Now, that doesn't mean that because if someone accuses you of having confirmation bias and you deny it, that doesn't mean you have it, okay? That, right. But, it, but you might. Um, and so it, it doesn't mean you don't have it either. And so we have to ask ourselves. So, so here's a funny thing. I was in a disagreement with a really good friend of mine about something. It, it had nothing to do with politics or anything else, but it was something that uh, regarding business that we both dis- were disagreeing with. And finally, he said to me, you know, Bob, I think right now you're suffering from confirmation bias. And my immediate thought was, I absolutely am not. <laughs> And then I thought, well, wait a second. Okay, hang on, Berg. You know, I'm, I'm denying it. Could I be suffering from confirmation bias? And so, I, and actually in this case, I was. I was defensive because I had an idea that I was defending. And, I, and absolutely I was. Now, again, it doesn't mean I necessarily was just because he said it. might have been he who was. But in this case, it, it was I who, who was. So, so, again, when we can do that, 
that really, that's mastering our emotions. When we can now, and here's another thing I suggest to people, Susan, if you are a uh, political uh, conservative who usually watches Fox News, watch MSNBC, okay? If you're a political uh, progressive, watch Fox. Now, and I'm not saying, you know, if you're a political progressive, watch the clips of Fox that they show on MSNBC because that's skewed. <laughs> or if you're a conservative, don't watch, you know, the clips that's on right. Fox that, you know, that's skewed. No, I mean, watch the other one that is the opposite of your viewpoint, but right. don't watch it just to pick holes in what they're doing. And, you, uh, and by the way, don't watch it in order to agree. You don't need to do that either. Just watch them, the other one, so that you'll understand their thought processes. You'll yeah. understand why they feel the way they do. And here's what you're going to see, that neither side has evil intent. I mean, there are always some, you know, they're the outliers on, on both sides that, of course, there are always some. But, but by and large, most people want good for all, okay? They have two different ways of going about it, of course. Uh, but, but rather than seeing the other side as being evil, see them as being incorrect or naive or however you want to see them being. But, but one, when you watch them and you watch them with an eye toward understanding, you're going to see human beings and you're going to understand their thought process a little more, which is actually going to make you more powerful when you engage with them. I, I love that. So I'm sitting here thinking about how my head would really hurt if I watched Fox, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'm also thinking that um, there are actual real journalists on Fox News that, that have lots of credibility and, you know, I shouldn't discount them. So it does make me open my mind. And I'm also thinking that um, most people, so I used to work at Thomson Reuters and I would, I would just stick to Reuters, you know, look at the, the wire services because that's where most of these news outlets pull their information and then they spin it to meet the entertainment needs of the, the viewers. But I try to watch certain shows. Um, I'm not big on TV in the first place, but when I do watch, I try to watch certain shows uh, where I can learn, even if it's not in keeping with my um, beliefs, I can still learn, like you say, um, keep an open mind and try to adapt the other person's point of view. Whether I agree with that or not is not necessarily um, my intended outcome. It's just to understand. Yeah, understand. Now, you don't have to adopt it, but just to understand. And I think yes. that's, you know, and again, I'm not a big TV person, but when I do and I'm watching the, the news or the talk shows, I, I'll flip every five minutes from, from Fox to CNN to MSNBC. And I want to say, you know, often here, what you see is, is the same story, but you see two totally different stories. Exactly. Exactly. So the fact that you flip channels a lot, that's a sign of genius, by the way. Did you know? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know, but thank you. And I try to read, you know, when I read online, I try to, I try to read, you know, the, uh, from the left, from the right, from the, you know, uh, and, and try to get the, and, and that way you can actually piece together certain truths that you know you wouldn't be you really wouldn't be able to if you're just buying into one you know source right i agree i agree so um i i believe that there are uh, there's so so my husband used to be an elected official in the republican party and i come from a long line of electeds in the democrat party and so we were in our perspective parties and, and really fun at parties, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So um, we have both gone through this exercise of doing just what you've suggested, probably not as much as we need to, but we've gone through this exercise personally with each other. And so it makes me, uh, he's definitely a fiscal conservative. He's not a social conservative, but it makes me, um, I believe there's a place in the world for both. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to get along famously. And, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, those folks on both sides of the aisle would go to dinner after work or go have right. a drink or talk about things. And that they just went about, there were many, many paths to the mountaintop, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now it seems like um, there are only two. And, and it's just, you know, I think your book helps people to, stop thinking that this is the way it has always been or the way that it should be and gives them an opportunity to um, have an open mind, a, a more global view, a fuller look at each and every issue and maybe develop 
relationships with people who aren't just exactly like they are. And I think that's really healthy. Um, I find that we have to examine where does ego play a role in our reactions to others and our initial thoughts on things that we don't agree with, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So this exactly. book has been a fantastic eye-opener. Um, for Thank me, you. it's confirmed. <laughs> maybe it's that bias you talked about. Um, it's, it's, it's validated a lot of the beliefs that I have that how we should negotiate doesn't always have to be win-lose. It can be win-win. And um, I love the book. I, I absolutely think it's, it's fantastic. And I'm, like I said, I've already bought the others in the series. Uh -huh. I'm going to start from scratch and, and read them through. You are quite delightful. I want to ask you a little bit about yourself now. We've covered the book, and I think it's definitely worth uh, gift giving at this time of year. Or, you know, you. you can read it on a plane. It's a fantastic read. It's not overwhelming, and it's certainly um, in language that everyone can appreciate. So tell me a little bit. You mentioned your dad. You mentioned Dale Carnegie. You've mentioned um, prior to our recording, you mentioned a couple of women in business who are um, influential or who have made an impact on your life, who has been your best mentor? Well, I was very, very fortunate to be raised by two great parents. Um, so I, I got very lucky with my mom and dad, nice. uh, two wonderful people. Um, you know, my, my dad was more in the, the public eye, um, than, than my mom. And, um, so, and, and I am as well. So, you know, I, I kind of got to, to see how to handle myself in the public eye and, and so forth. And um, my dad, to me, is just somebody with the people skills like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he just, um, just naturally had a caring and a love for people, bringing out the best in others. And so I got to watch him in action. Very nice. And, and I mean, that, that's really, you know, I, uh, while I've read so many of the books and you and I talked about some of the people who we've both read, who we, we very much admire, um, their books. And I've, you know, I like to think I've read most of the books on influence and persuasion out there. I probably not, not, you know, there's probably too, so many more that I haven't, but I'd like to think I have uh, read a lot of them, but I'll tell you, it's, it's to, you know, to paraphrase uh, the title of another book, everything I, really that I need to know about influence. I learned from my dad and nice. it, it was just from, from watching his gen. And I always say that the single greatest people skill, the single greatest people skill is a highly developed and authentic interest in the other person. Awesome. And th awesome. Th that's not anything my dad ever told me. It's just what I observed. Yeah. <laughs> But, so I am giving you that gift. You fascinate me. I have been listening. Um, there have been a lot of emphatic pauses, but not because they were intended. They were because I'm jotting down notes. Oh, you have you. so much great stuff to share. And the way you say it, your content is great, but your delivery is booming and very, oh. you know, you resonate with a lot of my listeners. I'm sure they're going to love what you've said and how you've said it. One last thing I'd like to ask, um, you know, this has been a great series for you, and I know your history and background is pretty fantastic. I'm sure there have been challenges or setbacks. How did you over name one, and how did you overcome that? Oh, I think the biggest setback, the uh, biggest thing I have to ever overcome is myself. But you know, I think that's with with many of us. But I would say, really, my 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 biggest hindrance, if you will, is that I've, I've been a lifelong sufferer of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which uh, is a very misunderstood um, uh, mental illness, if you will. It's, you know, people joke, oh, I'm so OCD about that. That's totally so not what OCD is. Um, and, uh, but it's a, it's a very, very debilitating chemical imbalance. And uh, so I've had, that's been my biggest uh, anchor in a sense. And I often say that, you know, um, unlike a, an obsessive personality, a person can be successful in certain areas because of their obsessive personality, but no one is successful because of having OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. They're successful despite having 
OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. So uh, I've had, fortunately, there are great places now. And, you know, when I, I'm 60 years old, Susan, so when I was a kid, no one knew what this was. It was 20, I was 26 before it was diagnosed. Now, fortunately, because of, of places like the uh, International Obsessive Compulsive Foundation, IOCDF.org, uh, you know, there's help for, you know, young kids and for adults and everyone else. They do wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, but back then, no one knew about, about this. And so, um, you know, so, you know, you, you kind of grow up thinking that this, this craziness that you know you're feeling, you think you're the only one. And uh, so it was, you know, that's been tough. But, you know, again, you, you, you deal with it. You live your life despite it. But, but if you're going to ask what's my biggest setback, it's, it's probably having OCD. So I think that you're amazing, the courage that you just uh, exhibited in sharing that. I am one of those people, shame on me, that says, oh, I'm so OCD, I have to have a list. And, blah, blah. and, and I'll make jokes like, OCD is great in the workplace, but hell on a marriage, you know, that sort of thing. But you're right. I just not great anywhere. <laughs> correct. You're absolutely right. But that's okay. That you can't know. That's one of those things, you know, because there's a big kind of to do about the fact that there's these... Um, during the holiday season, there's all these shirts, you know, I'm OCD about Christmas or I'm OCD about the, you know, and all these things are when people say, I'm, uh, you know, there's jokes may I think on, on somebody said on the Kardashian site or something about being OCD or something, whatever. And people with OCD get really angry at it, but you know what? Yeah. You can't, but you can't, unless you have OCD, which is by the way, so hard to explain to someone who doesn't have it, that it's almost almost impossible for someone to really empathize with an OCD sufferer unless they have it. And I don't want anyone else to have it, you know? So, right. but, so I understand that it's not meant in a way that is uh, meant to be disrespectful. And so I think people need to kind of, you know, realize it's, there's nothing, you know, it, but, but yeah, if people really understood, no, there'd never be a shirt that said, Oh, I'm OCD about this. And no one would ever say, Oh, I'm OCD about my, whatever, because they know that that has nothing to do with, with OCD. But you know, again, so, so let me ask you, don't, I mean, I am very impressed and, and thankful and grateful for your sharing that. Um, I want to ask you something. Um, I do know that OCD is a serious um, condition that, that is diagnosed and that there has to be help for. And you say there is out there, thank goodness. Um, but people like myself, like I'll try to fall asleep, but if the picture is crooked on the wall, I cannot get to sleep unless I get up, turn on the light, fix the picture, and then go back to sleep. That is certainly not um, an extreme hindrance in my life, but if I were to um, not get that sleep, you know what I'm saying? It could be if I, you know, I absolutely have to straighten the picture on the wall before I can fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Another thing is I have to write things down at night if my mind is processing so much information. I need to write it down and make a list and get it out of there so that I can fall asleep. I often wake up at two in the morning. None of these things I don't think qualify for OCD. But no, there's just there's some minor there there's some minor obsessions and that's fine. But OCD is a different thing. O OCD right. is more about the the typically the the compulsions are more as a way to magically rid the OCD sufferer of a thought that they know is not so, but it's so disturbing and so distressing uh, and so uncomfortable that, that, that you go through it anyway. So it's, let's put it this way. People with OCD, Susan, are not crazy, and here's why. Because people with OCD understand that these thoughts are crazy. Gotcha. If, yeah, if gotcha. we didn't know that they were crazy thoughts, we'd be crazy. But because we know they are, we're not, but it's still, it's still debilitating and it can keep you from actually moving or doing anything for, yeah. You know, yeah. It's paralyzing. So it's paralyzing. That's a great, yeah. Paralyzing. Yeah. You're amazing. So it's amazing that you've worked through this or you've learned to manage it or you've gotten help you need or whatever. But I think there are a lot of people out there who need to know the difference between um, having those tendencies and just being compulsive versus having actual OCD. Um, that, that is in the DSM, that is debilitating, paralyzing. Um, exactly. Yeah. So you, you are fabulous. You've managed to be one of my favorites and written all these wonderful books 
And I have already indicated to people close to me that they can expect a book from me at Christmas. So <laughs> that'll be my gift of choice. Um, one last thing, and then we'll say goodbye. I am a big proponent of lifting women in business. If anyone visits my website, they know that's what I do. Um, how do you think that we can lift women in business considering the challenges that we face, um, not just with communication, but pay gap and, you know, the, the lack of understanding the language of those who created the operating system that we live in. It's called muted group theory. So a lot of women don't do well in corporate America because they're not the white males that made the language um, mm -hmm. that, that, that company runs by. But so, so what, what tips, hints, you know, well, so I, I think that it's a matter of continuing to do what you're doing because lots of strides have been made. And, you know, I remember speaking with, um, you know, a hero of mine by the name of Sharon Lecter. You and I spoke with her. She is a, uh, well, she's an author. She started out as an accountant. She, she developed manufactured educational games that sold all over the world. She later was the co-author of a hugely selling book series. I mean, she's such an amazing person. And she and I spoke, and she's a person who, you know, you never hear her talk about, you know, let's say victimization. She told me a story when she was first starting out as an accountant um, of, of something because she was a woman. And it's just, it blew my mind that that kind of stuff actually happened. Yeah. Um, and I hear the same from many women who I know, who again, you never hear them, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, the- uh, There's you know, no poor me. They don't cry poor there's me. There's no poor, right. There's no poor me. But when you hear the stories and things they've had to go through, you understand that, you know, that it's a thing. Now, I remember reading- um, Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, I'm trying to the San, uh, Sandberg. Uh, is it Cheryl? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Cheryl Sandberg's Lean Cheryl In. Cheryl Sandberg, her book Lean In. And, you know, I've always considered myself to be uh, and have had, and this is, you know, when I was much younger, and there have been women who've, who've said, you know, who, and I'm not, pleased. I'm not saying this as a brag, I'm just saying this to set the premise of, a, you know, they've said, Bob, you know, that you've always been a staunch defender of, uh, they've said women's rights. Really, I just always thought of human rights, but you know, that's, but, but when I read Cheryl's book, I mean, I saw things in there that went way past what I thought was the sexism that right. disgusted me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I saw things in there that I said, wow, have I ever done that stuff? And my first you know, suffering from confirmation bias, I'm sure I said, no, I absolutely <laughs> never have not called on something. And then I said, but wait, could I have? You know what I'm saying? So is yeah. it out there? Of course, it's horrible. Any kind of sex, any kind of negativism is horrible. But I think it's, it's really like this, that you keep doing what you're doing and you, and you take pleasure in the advances. Yes. And this is something that I... I don't see enough. And I, I don't say much because I don't want to be accused of man. Right, right. Okay? I get that. So, but there's times when women have, as a, as a group, okay, have made enormous strides, but very seldom do you hear them, see them tweeting or posting or talking about right. the great strides. It's always about the, you know, the negative. And, and again, there's a time and place for that. And, and, that's, and that always has to be, the light always has to be shined upon that because as we say, right, light is the greatest disinfectant. But I think it's also important as women continue to support other women and as men support women and as everyone supports the whole, um, not support women because women need support any more than men do, okay? It's supporting women because of, like you said, the frame out of which we've been operating for eons. And right. so, um, but as that continues, it needs to continue. And I think we also need to keep on also shining the light on the good that's been accomplished. I think that's such an important message because I think that when we, uh, and I say we meaning women, when we shout a message of anger and negativity, we turn people off, tune them, you know, they tune us out. 
And instead of celebrating each small step, which is the way to the greatest, longest journey is just by each one step, taking one step at a time, then we turn people off and we lose, um, you know, our message gets lost. We lose supporters. And then especially the men who are uh, partnering with us on this and, and believing for the, themselves, their daughters, their wives, their sisters, that this is the right thing to do. I think that we lose those um, friendly forces, if you will, when we mm-hmm. um, are angry. I don't think anger is ever helpful. Now, you know, that that's a whole nother podcast. We could talk about the pros and cons of anger. Sure. And, and, and there's, there's a time and place for it, right. when it but it's got to be controlled. If the anger controls you, it's never a positive. When you control the anger and direct it appropriately, now that can be used for power. And, you know, anger over uh, something unrighteous, anger over a crime, anger over, you know, right. Uh, whatever. Yeah, of course. But that anger needs to be directed in a positive way. And right. when it is, it can have, it can have, you know, great results. Well, I know this really, really awesome author and really great thought leader and super accomplished guy named Bob Berg says that you Never should heard master, him. master your emotions. <laughs> <laughs> so you have been absolutely, I would say you're in my top three favorite guests. Oh, thank yeah. you. That's very kind. Yeah. So thank you so much for being with me and letting my listeners uh, get a little more insight into not only the book, but you. And I look forward to sharing your book with all my loved ones for the holiday season. So um, this has been great. I'm going to say goodbye, everyone, and have a great day. Bob, is there anything you'd like to say before we close? No, I just wish everyone much continued success and a, a life of ongoing joy and happiness. All right, folks. Well, the book is called The Go-Giver Influencer by Bob Berg and John David Mann. Thank you, too, for being here and for writing these books. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.